You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome. I am Michaela Novak, Senior Fellow with the FAC Hayek Program in Advanced Study of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The podcast episode today represents the first of a three-part mini-series on civil society, encompassing the practical nature of voluntary mutual assistance outside, but entangled with, the domains of market and state, and also the theoretical dimensions of civil society to help us better understand group cooperation and social coordination. The concept of civil society is long held an esteemed position within classical liberal thought, eliciting not only scholarly attention, but as we shall show during this mini-series, practical efforts of direct help and support for diverse communities. It is my very great pleasure to speak to Leah Kral. Leah Kral is Senior Director of Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. She recently published an important book on nonprofit innovation entitled Innovation for Social Change with Wiley. And Leah Kral's book will serve as a focal point for our discussions. Leah Kral is an expert facilitator and author who helps nonprofit organizations innovate and advance social change. She provides tailored workshops and consulting to internal teams and to a network of nonprofit partners across the country. For decades, she has been helping nonprofit teams to break out of the busy daily routine and draw out their best creative thinking. She helps teams to design pilots, program strategies, and meaningful evaluation approaches, leading to better outcomes and more compelling stories for supporters. Leah has a passion for helping altruistic organizations achieve their missions and is an active volunteer in her community. Kral holds a Master of Arts in Public Policy from Duke Next University and a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature from the University of Central Oklahoma. Leah, it's a great pleasure to have you speak with me. Welcome to the High Program podcast. Thank you, Michaela, for that kind introduction, and thank you for having me today. You're very welcome. So what we'll do uh, today with this uh, podcast uh, episode is start off with some background to help uh, introduce you to our sort of listeners uh, today. So uh, what instigated your interest in civil society and its diverse organisational forms? Were there any noteworthy experiences insights or knowledge gained throughout your life and career that helped you to engage in in-depth studies on non-profit organizations? Well, um, back in my early career, I definitely didn't expect to spend a career uh, working on civil society and working with nonprofits. Uh, originally, I'm from Northeast Ohio, which is a very industrialized place. You've got the automotive industry and just about everybody I knew, my friends or family were sort of working in that. And I expected that to be my career path as well. Lots of kind of industrial engineers and accountants and, and people working in that world. So I started out the first seven years or so of my career was doing that sort of work. Um, and it was, you know, it was rolling along okay. I was, you know, doing fine and progressing in my career and learning things. Um, but my heart just felt drawn somewhere else. And so uh, my husband and I at the time realized we were at a point in our life where we could be flexible and do something adventurous. So life kind of took a wild and crazy turn and uh, I applied for the Peace Corps. And so my husband and I ended up going into the Peace Corps. We were uh, landed in Jamaica. And so that was definitely a huge life turning point. I think it would be for anyone. Um, and so I, you know, I saw things that just kind of were mind blowing and unexpected, saw, you know, 
of course we have poverty in the, in the United States, but um, the poverty that I saw in Jamaica was unlike anything I had seen before. And I saw a lot of people uh, that, I, that I came to care about uh, very admirably struggling to survive. Uh, you know, I saw things like a black market economy. There was really not much of a middle class. So all those things were just kind of shocking and profound and, and life-changing. Um, for example, one of the things that uh, really shook me was seeing a, a lot of uh, squatters, people who didn't necessarily plan or want to be squatters, um, but uh, a lot of times they would build their own homes by hand. Uh, sometimes it would take years just gathering materials as they could, uh, maybe concrete cinder blocks and uh, you know corrugated roofs. And um, you know, so they would finally build their house and then have no security to their home. So they would live under the duress of of possibly having their home being bulldozed. Um, so they didn't have the, a lot of the infrastructure that we you know, take, take for granted here in the US. Um, and what I also couldn't help but notice is even though there were lots of nonprofits there, lots of NGOs, uh, lots of money uh, you know, serving important needs there, things like education, uh, healthcare, but no one was really paying serious attention to the property rights problem. So this kind of got me fired up. And after I finished my two years in the Peace Corps, uh, I got a master's in public policy, as you mentioned, and uh, my thesis I spent thinking about this problem of property rights. And so um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do after I was wrapping up my master's degree, started sending resumes out. And then I found out about this really cool one-year fellowship in nonprofit management at a place called the Stand Together Foundation. It uh, really caught my attention and it seemed to be a good match. And how that worked was one day a week, you'd spend there at the foundation hearing lectures, learning, discussing things related to nonprofit management. Uh, people from uh, George Mason actually would come in as speakers. Um, and then four days a week, you'd be placed in sort of a work assignment. And so my placement was at a place called the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And uh, I had not heard of Mercatus before then, but I think I did actually run across Chris Coyne's research as I was doing my master's thesis. And so um, to describe my work placement at Mercatus, so um, for those people who may not know about Mercatus, we bridge economic ideas into the real world to advance human flourishing. So I work alongside a lot of brainy economists and I really love the mission. It turned out to be a perfect fit for me. Uh, what Mercatus needed at the time was they were thinking about, well, how we're, we're doing, we're raising money to, to run these programs and we wanna make sure that our donors and our board uh, do hold us accountable. And so they asked me to work with our different program teams to facilitate conversations and discussions about, well, what is it we're trying to do? And what are the outcomes that we're seeking? And how do we know if what we're doing is working? And uh, I've been with Mercatus ever since. I, I really like working there. And uh, what I didn't know, but what I've since learned is uh, I had the opportunity to, to work with these wonderful economists who are also applying economic, economic ideas into the workplace. So not only did I take sort of my um, past for-profit world experience of thinkers like Drucker and Covey and Dimming, um, but I also got this wonderful exposure to an economic way of thinking, which was really exciting. Um, and then three years ago, my executive director uh, said, hey, Leah, I've been hearing really good things about your workshops. Why don't you put it into book form? And uh, that's really exciting. And as you mentioned, it's now out. And uh, the book is really written for busy practitioners working on the front lines of nonprofits. It's full of stories and best practices. Very practical, not, not an academic book necessarily, but very practical book. Um, and there's lots of innovators and entrepreneurs who are in the nonprofit space, which might surprise some people. I think a lot of people associate kind of that innovation and entrepreneurship with the, the for-profit world. But um, I, I suspect, as you know, right, there's a lot of entrepreneurial people working in the nonprofit space as well. And it's very interesting to think about the trajectory of your career from um, a sort of potential engineering aspiration to now being a sort of practitioner uh, providing advice, uh, strategic advice to the non-for-profit uh, world in the sense that uh, the career that you are in now and your book, I think, very aptly reflects uh, this idea that basically you're adopting a non-engineering approach uh, to uh, helping uh, non-profits as they navigate their, their way through context and through a complex world. And I'm sure we'll sort of flesh out uh, some of those sort of contextual sort of underlying bases uh, for the study of nonprofits in your book. Um, so the another follow-up question I had is, uh, again, to illuminate background, is to what extent um, have the key tenets of classical liberalism, including that of free association, as well as voluntaristic forms of 
collective action to resolve social problems or of mainline economics, which keeps to the same commitments as philosophical liberalism, motivated your own work? While researching my book, I started getting curious and asking, well, where do nonprofits as we know them come from? And, and when did that come about? And uh, even though that, that uh, I ended up not writing that in my book because the book is meant for practitioners, but I did a little side journey and just got curious um, and started reading about this. And I ran across this historian at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, his name is David Hammack. And uh, he's written a number of books on the history of civil society and philanthropy. And I, I would recommend definitely check him out. And I, my hope is now that I finish the book, I can return back and, and spend more time with his research. Um, but from reading his work, it struck me that the birth of nonprofits is really aligned with the story of freedom and classical liberalism. It's super interesting. Um, so just uh, uh, summarizing some points that I took away from Hammock's research. Uh, so as we know, when Tocqueville famously visited the United States back in the 1830s, he was very surprised. He observed that in comparison to what he was used to in France and in Europe, uh, the United States has the, had these very free associations, and he was struck by the freedom of it and wrote about that. And uh, they were far more decentralized, um, voluntary and bottom-up than what he was used to. And I have this quote from him. He said, we've hardly ever seen anything of the kind. And um, in England, he also said that it was the landed aristocrat who was the primary organizer for social or public concerns. And then those who were dependent upon the aristocrat were then subservient to the execution of his designs. So in other words, if you weren't a wealthy aristocrat and you wanted to do something in your community, uh, it wasn't necessarily through your thoughts or your ideas. You or your family might be voluntold to build the new almshouse or the new orphanage. I find that really interesting. Um, so back in Europe, this idea of a nonprofit getting a legal charter to work on a particular mission or outside the control of the church or outside the control of these feudal lords uh, was considered far too radical, that that would have been dangerous to give people that kind of freedom. So I, I find that a very interesting story. Um, so it, it looks to me, based on Hammock's work, that the American Revolution was a major turning point in how civil society was organized. Uh, far more people than ever before were free to address social needs and issues in the way that they thought best. And so they were free to donate, not donate, participate or not participate in associations that they thought deserved their time and money, which is very wonderfully bottom up. Uh, and there could now be competition amongst nonprofits and to compete, of course, they need to be effective and innovative. <laughs> and then uh, also uh, something that struck me, I, I mean, I've kind of been on my own journey um, learning more about classical liberalism, but uh, Emily Chamley Wright's uh, discussion, her Four Corners of Liberalism, I know she's been on this podcast and talked about that. Um, I'll just mention two of her Four Corners, but one, she talks about ep epistemic liberalism. That's a, that's a big word. Um, but epistemic liberalism is about the norms that allow us to collaborate and pursue truth with each other which is very important for innovation in, in the workplace. Um, and she also talks about cultural li liberalism, which um, in my interpretation, that involves treating each other as dignified equals before the law, um, but also treating each other with respect as we engage with each other. So that's all fine and good in the abstract, right? But what does that actually mean in the nonprofit workplace? Uh, so having the privilege to work somewhere like Mercatus, I got to see those principles applied in our everyday workplace. Uh, and this is no accident, and this is something that other nonprofits can definitely easily learn from and replicate. Uh, you'll see many workplaces, both in the for-profit world and nonprofit world, having what they might call principles or values. Um, but in some places, that those just might be platitudes, right? So we've got to kind of walk the talk. So at Mercatus, I would say we really mean it and live it. And so there's some principles. we have, I think we have about eight or ten of them, but I'll just name a few. But one is the pursuit of truth over dogma, which I, I really like. Uh, another is challenge, which means you're empowered to speak up in the workplace. I can, you know, disagree with my boss. That's absolutely no problem where I work, uh, as long as it's done, you know, respectfully. Another is humility and openness and respect. Um, I would say that we walk the talk because these principles are um, thoughtfully designed into our workplace. They're part of our recruiting and interviewing process, our onboarding process, and um, there's also incentives during our performance review process where we are reviewed by our peers. We have a 360 degree review process where it's not just your boss evaluating your performance, but the, your colleagues that you work with. And they're asking questions like, well, when was the last time that Leah uh, displayed challenge um, effectively in her role working with you? 
Um, and I found, as I was researching the book, I found other organizations that did similar things, like Mayo Clinic is really well known for innovation and they have similar practices. So uh, definitely go into more detail about that in the book. Uh, but back, so that was classical liberalism, but back to your question about economics. Uh, so my book does translate a lot of economic ideas into the nonprofit workplace, but you don't have to be an economist. I'm certainly not um, to, to get these lessons and, and apply them in work. Um, so what I try to do is translate some of these economic principles through stories so, so that the reader doesn't have to have this sort of expertise. And there are concepts like trans transaction costs, trade-offs, opportunity costs, bottom-up empowerment, public goods. Um, but I don't throw a lot of those terms around. Instead, I share them through very practical stories. Um, but just as an example, would you ever use innovation and budgeting process in the same sentence? Like when you hear budgeting process, that sounds so kind of boring and bureaucratic. Um, but there are ways that you can structure your budgeting process in the workplace to really encourage innovation and savvy trade-off thinking. And I talk about that in the book. Um, people involved in the Hayek program, a number of people were kind enough to be chapter reviewers for my book. Um, and they allowed me time to interview them. So I had interviews with people like Virgil Storr, Matt Mitchell, Emily Chamley Wright, uh, Stephanie Haefeli, and, and many others. Uh, for example, I was working on this chapter about organizational design, and that was one of the harder chapters to write. And what is organizational design? Well, that's where you're exploring questions like, well, who gets to make decisions and why in the workplace? And when do you need formal structures versus informal structures? And so I realized as I was working on this chapter, I just it wasn't sitting right with me. And um, I was having these sort of internal debates with Hayek. And so I sought the help of economist Matt Mitchell. And uh, Matt is a person who co-wrote Mainline Economics with Pete Becky, really smart guy. And Matt sort of helped me get unstuck. So what I thought I knew about Hayek was that he had these important insights about the danger of top-down command and control bureaucracy. Um, but I mistakenly thought that Hayek was mostly against organization and structure. I was wrong about that. So Matt Mitchell set me straight, and uh, he actually uh, brought uh, this wonderful quote to my attention that's in the book. But Hayek said that organization is one of the most powerful tools that human reason can employ. And then um, also along with that, Matt also pointed me towards James Buchanan's uh, Calculus of Consent. And in that is really great wisdom about decision making. So I kind of poured through that material, talked with Matt, and then tried to translate it into what ended up making a lot more sense to me. And I felt much happier with that chapter with, with that help. So I learned that when we're designing organizational structure, thinking about things like, well, who gets to make decisions in our workplace and why, it's really all about balance. And organization becomes more important as a nonprofit grows. So we have to thoughtfully discern our way through that, through questions like that. And uh, I know the, the listeners can't see it, but uh, I'll show Michaela. But there's a diagram in the book that's sort of, it looks like a seesaw. And so on the one side of the seesaw, you have creativity and empowerment. And on, on the other side, you have these things that are, that are difficult, like managing complexity, your intentional processes, your decision making, your resource allocation, right? So how do you... How do you sort of navigate the right balance? And so I, I think the chapter does a good job um, providing guidance to, to people who are struggling with those things. And some things are a wonderful surprise. I've got a, examples where um, a section in that where we talk about, well, when is the right approach having no organization or structure? And organizations like Al Alcoholics Anonymous, which are extremely bottom up, are a good example of that. So there's a little bit of both depending on the type of organization and your mission. So you refer to the figures of um, Hayek and Buchanan, but it's also very obvious just from uh, the very perceptive comments you provided there that the figures of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom figure very heavily uh, in your own uh, approach in terms of the possibilities of uh, self-organising, which must be really the central point of non-profit operations and uh, governance. So uh, on that note, I think what we'll uh, do now is to actually turn to your book, um, Innovation for Social, Social Change. And uh, there are a range of uh, very important insights that emerge from uh, this important book. And so I'll start off by making a comment about a nonprofit organisation, where one might assume that uh, certainly for many listeners of uh, this podcast, presumably, the internal operations of nonprofit organizations represent something of a quote-unquote black box. So donations pour in, 
and social financing and services delivery pour out. Um, but what goes in within that intermediation stage known as nonprofit organizational activity? I'm wondering, uh, Leah, if you could tell us about some of the principles and practice of good internal management on nonprofits and especially teamwork that you discovered during your research, please. Yes, I've seen a funny cartoon along those lines of that black box idea. A lot of people, you know, might, especially if they're not working in nonprofits, they might think, oh, you know, donations go in and this mysterious stuff happens in the middle and then somehow outcomes happen. And there's actually a really funny cartoon that gets circulated amongst nonprofit professionals. I've seen it a number of times and it's these two uh, maybe mathematicians standing in front of a blackboard and there's all sorts of formulas written all over it. But the middle of the blackboard is just kind of, uh, it's just erased. There's nothing on it except for the writing um, that says, uh, and then a miracle occurs. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> I think uh, that's true. So um, there, there are a lot of that. What I do try to do in the book is try to break down that magic in the middle um, so that it's um, you know, helpful to people in nonprofits, but also outside of nonprofits. So there's, there's a number of things that are important. I won't go into them all, but uh, a really key one is clarity of thinking, clarity of intentions. And I, when I end my work with teams, I spend, we spend a lot of time that that's actually really hard, um, trying to figure out what is the thing you're trying to do. You might have a range of possibilities for a social problem you're trying to solve. Um, so there's usually just a lot of heavy duty thinking that goes into that. It's much easier said than done. Um, and so, uh, I, I share a number of examples in my book about that. Uh, one, I, I try to take examples we might be familiar with, like the civil rights movement, and did a lot of reading on that, and then just tried to break it down and show, well, these were all the problems that they were wrestling with and facing, and they were trying to choose, well, which are we going to address? And I share their just inter internal discussions about that, which were fascinating. Um, and so how did they come to their theory of change? You know, they did a lot of experiments and really good things that we can learn from. Um, I also did the same for a, a wonderful school in New Jersey that's serving at-risk youth. Uh, they very creatively ended up being a student-run school. Their stories in the book, they've been featured on 60 Minutes. They're just remarkable. So um, being really clear about what your North Star is and then breaking it up into achievable chunks and then doing a lot of experimenting and trial and error, those are all things that kind of work together and are really important. Also, um, this, this thing of uh, measurement and evaluation in nonprofits is just a hairball, kind of a messy, challenging thing. And there's so many ways that can, that can go wrong or we can structure it in the wrong way. Uh, but creating feedback loops so that we can answer this question of how do we know if what we're doing is working? There's a, there's a whole chapter in the book about that. Um, the, uh, the book is really divided into three sections, and the first is probably the most fun. So what I do in the first section of the book is um, translate what's called design thinking. So you'll see a lot of for-profit and creative companies like Pixar using design thinking. And what it's all about really is there are technique, techniques you can use to encourage your team to think very creatively about what problem they're trying to solve. And so the way I broke it up in this first section of the book was um, drawing out team's thinkings on um, what's desirable, which means, well, what, what are the problems? Let's surface those and talk in depth about the problems that are out there. And, and then, so what's desirable, what's scalable. Um, so that means our ideas can sometimes be bigger than we realize. Uh, we might be able to experiment with something small, but that thing that we figured out might be able to be scaled to other states, for example. Um, so there's what's desirable, what's, what's scalable, and then what's feasible. And these are exercises designed to help teams think through about being realistic about who, who might be in opposition to the thing we want to do uh, and thinking through what battles we can win. Uh, and then all of this is then followed by experimentation. So that first section of the book is really giving managers the tools to help their teams think very creatively. And it, it's really kind of a fun, inspiring part of the book. Um, and once we get to that experimentation uh, section, there are lots of stories, um, good principles like um, fail fast and fail small. You know, conduct small pilots and experiments, uh, adjust and learn. And um, one of the people I interviewed there was Roman Hardgrave, who is one of the people running Marginal Revolution University that produces economics education videos. And he's got lots of very insightful stories about how they run different types of experiments. So it's quite interesting to, to listen to um your insights as retold uh, from the book in terms of breaking down sort of problems into navigable and piecemeal parts. And it seems to me that's actually quite 
uh, sort of a rational response, if we understand rationality to be purposeful, goal-directed activity in uncertain environments, because to be able to then break down activities into sort of piecemeal and manageable pieces allows for flexibility for nonprofits as all those sort of the gales of uncertainty sort of uh, blow around and affect nonprofits. So that's particularly interesting. And that really then gets to the term social innovation, which is uh, at the core of the title of your book. So the term social innovation has been certainly elevated as a major concept in nonprofit conceptual and practitioning literature. So what does that actually innovation look like? For a nonprofit organization, and why should innovation matter to nonprofits? That's a great question. Innovation to me, and it, the shorthand or how I think about it, is just simply finding better ways of doing things, finding creative ways to add value and solve problems. Uh, so, if we're working in the field of social change, innovation could be big or it could be small, like a I think the civil rights movement as a whole was it was a massive effort with many organizations. That's an example of really big social change. But innovation, uh, importantly, can also be very small. Uh, like, let's say you are at a nonprofit and you're doing intake for a legal aid clinic and you've been using a manual system, uh, taking in information by hand. But what if somebody came up with the small idea of using uh, you know, a, a, an iPad for taking in this information. And even though that's a small improvement, maybe you just saved time and labor, and now that, that the resources that used to go into all that can be shifted to something else, right? So uh, small or big, they both matter. And I think anyone in an organization can be an entrepreneur, can be an innovator, can find ways to add value. Uh, nonprofits are really important. They're solving some of the biggest social problems, wicked problems. Uh, and often nonprofits are solving those more effectively and more bottom up than government. I know as the Hayek program did research on uh, how people were responding in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, they, they found evidence that a lot of nonprofits were responding a lot more effectively than government. Um, so, so there's good evidence there that nonprofits are really important. And the stakes are high. Our, our beneficiaries are counting on us. And uh, if you're working at a nonprofit, we certainly don't want to waste our time. We want our, our time to, be, to matter. And donors certainly don't want to waste their money. Uh, there's a really good story uh, in the book of innovation that I just love. It's a, a there was a conservation group in South Africa, uh, and their job was to try to save the lives of these rhinoceroses. Uh, but they had this problem of these very clever poachers who, no matter what this nonprofit did, poachers would find ways to um, kind of get get into the compound kill these rhinoceroses in the middle of the night, take their, their um, horns and sell them on the black market. And uh, no matter how creatively the team tried to brainstorm about what to do, uh, they just couldn't overcome this problem. And they, like many other conservation groups, were um, investing lots of money in security and weapons and night patrols and night vision goggles, uh, but the rhinos were still getting poached. And so uh, to their credit, uh, they had a brainstorming session at one point and some brave soul proposed this crazy idea. And I can't even imagine the looks this person got in the room. But um, let's what if we move the rhinos out of the country to a safer place that's much harder for the poachers to get to? And to their credit, the team actually heard this sort of wild idea out. Uh, they calculated the cost. And once they figured out and it was a lot, I think it was like fifty thousand dollars per rhino. But it was actually, uh, there was a chance that it would have been more effective and less costly than all the security that they were doing. So they tried it, they experimented, uh, and eventually they found out that it, it was paying off. The herd has doubled in size. So they moved from, uh, these, this herd from out of South Africa to Botswana and their rhinos without borders. I think that's a brilliant example of innovation where what if they didn't do it? You know, then um, the herd would have continued to, you know, be disappearing, which would be terrible. Yeah, and that's a very interesting example as well, because by extricating uh, the rhinos from South Africa to another country altogether, actually reduces the uh, so the collective knowledge that the sort of the poachers themselves have into in terms of how to raid the uh, the, the rhino pens, so to speak. So yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating example. Thank you for sharing that. So um, you describe even early on in your book that uh, inefficiencies and lost opportunities are arguably a greater burden upon nonprofit efficacy than the scarcity or the scant level of resources that they do have. Now, do you think that 
efforts to eliminate those problems of inefficiency represent a potentially untapped source of non-profit innovation. I also wonder here if demonstration that internal inefficiencies have been or are being actively solved would help help improve public trust in non-profits. Or do you even think that the, the trust issue is a trumped-up non-problem? What do you think? As I think about your question, I, I kind of wonder if the answer is maybe a yes and. Um, I ran across a, this article with stats uh, from the independent sector, and they were arguing that trust in nonprofits is actually higher than, than most other institutions, higher than government. I don't know if that's what you've run across in your research. Um, and we know that, you know, nonprofits, it, like in the case of the uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina example, governments were more effective than, than government in that case. I think a lot of people maybe believe that or understand that. But I, I know from my own experience that, you know, there's a lot of laudable work happening. There are nonprofit heroes, people sacrificing. Uh, during my two years in the Peace Corps in Jamaica, I just remember feeling very moved by the things that I saw. Um, you know, I'd see community organizers uh, just waiting for hours on end at bus stops, you know, to go to the community event just to, to do something good for social change. They were really sacrificing. So, you know, there's just so many needs in the world and there are a lot of people who are rising to the occasion to address those needs. And I, I write about many of those in the book. So, yes, we should be passionate, but we should also be thoughtful. Uh, we can have these barn-sized blind spots like what I saw in Jamaica with, you know, people pouring lots of money into programs, but nobody paying any attention to something fundamental like let's help people get land titles so that then they can be empowered and they won't need all this help. So we can have these blind spots and, you know, we, we need to address that. So, you know, there's this great uh, uh, Covey quote, you can be climbing up the ladder, but is your ladder leaning against the right wall in the first place? I, I think that's brilliant. And, you know, we can get caught up in, in nonprofits, you know, we can be spread too thin. We call it the tyranny of the urgent, right? So busy carrying out our everyday work that we miss that big picture. So I think Covey makes a really good point there. Um, there's another story in the book that I, I was uh, really surprised to learn about. So a lot of people probably heard of Whole House in Chicago. Uh, it was an immigrant resettlement house uh, that was around for over 100 years and really well known. Its founder had won the Nobel Prize. They had copycat settlement houses all over the country. But uh, mission creep actually is what eventually led to its closing. And that really surprised the rock, the Chicago community. And when you unpeel that story, what you find is that they, they kind of changed their mission over time without really noticing or paying attention. Um, and ended up having to kind of tragically close their doors. So it's a, it's a story of blind spots and failing to ask key questions. So I would say, back to your question, in nonprofits, it's really important to make the time to be intentional. And by being clear about our intentions, we can then think about, well, how are we going to gather evidence to know if, if we're on track or if what we're doing is working? All this takes a lot of work, it takes team conversations, it takes you know, good leadership. Um, and, you know, individual donors may not, may not even want that level of detail from us. Often they don't, um, but the larger grant makers will. So one of the more intriguing aspects of your book, and you've already hinted at this, is the importance that you give to the generation of ideas as well as of rhetorical persuasion. Now, do you think that figures within the nonprofit sector and of civil society exhibit a kind of entrepreneurship? in their efforts to propagate ideas uh, to resolve social problems and to persuade others to donate, volunteer, or to get involved? What is the place of entrepreneurship here uh, that you've already alluded to? I'd like to uh, get some clarification about that. Definitely. Uh, persuasion is so important uh, to being entrepreneurial. So if you're working in a nonprofit, there's so many people you have to persuade. Uh, you have to, you want to you know, convince people that your good idea is a great idea. You want to stand out from the crowd. And for anything we want to do in nonprofits, we need resources to do those things. So often we find ourselves trying to convince our colleagues down the hall. Uh, maybe you're trying to convince your boss or you're trying to persuade donors or grant makers. You also might have to try to persuade uh, what I'll call superstar talent to come work at your nonprofit. So there's all sorts of persuasion going on all the time. At organizations like Mercatus, you might have to convince an internal team to support your particular project. Um, so I give an example of the book. I thought this was great. So even though this is kind of a small example, you can widen this to larger lessons. 
Um, so our IT team, so we're an organization of about 200 people. We have a, a terrific IT team. And so they might get 100 requests and end up only having the resources to work on 30. So how on earth do they, you know, sort through all of those opportunities to make the right decision for the organization? And so what they have, and I share this in the book, is sort of a, a decision-making rubric. And they have questions like, will this affect the security of the organization? I think they're like 20 questions, right? So right at the top, will this affect the security of our IT system? Uh, another one might be, will this affect external stakeholders like donors? Another would be, will this stop work, right? So they have these just smart, very logical questions. And I think that concept works kind of the same way. Like if you're, if you're a grant maker, right, you probably have your own rubric for you can only give five grants, but you've got a stack of a hundred that you've got to sort through, right? So what is your logic for making decisions? And then on, so that's the decision maker, right? But on the flip side, you've got a persuader, someone who has to be really good at, at persuading. And as I was researching the book, looking for examples and stories, I, I, and a few times I just laughed out loud because we all know about Mother Teresa and Fred Rogers, who were just these powerhouses of people and did wonderful things in the nonprofit world. But if you look at their origin stories where they first got started, they were told no all the time. And this is Mother Teresa, right? People are like, no, I, I don't like your idea. Go away. Um, you know, so they had doors closed and then they had to learn how to get really persuasive. Um, and I think there are good lessons in that for us. If, if we're in the nonprofit space, if we really want to advance the hard work of social change, we're going to face obstacles. People are going to tell us no. So if you've got a good idea, you've got to be really persuasive about it. I also think that uh, alludes to, obviously, the, the, the importance of uh, persistence, really, in the, again, in the face of obstacles. So, the, you know, some really lovely examples that you raised there. So um, in your um, book, you provide, I think, a very even-handed treatment of nonprofit success and of failures. So what are the kinds of examples of nonprofit failure outlined in your book? And what were the social ramifications of those failings? Is there some kind of feedback mechanism within civil society, such as reputational status or even performance metrics from evaluations that help incentivize nonprofits to help them avoid failure? Yeah, incentives are definitely part part of how this all works. Uh, if you have a poorly run nonprofit with weak results, it may not happen right away, but in time, you you will lose donors or you will lose superstar talent. They'll go elsewhere. So there is a form of, of competition for these things. And so nonprofit, you know, they, they might get away with it for a time, right? But sooner or later, you're, you're going to lose great people and, and donations. Um, and I was just reading your book, Michaela, uh, Freedom and Contention, where you mentioned that followers can exit a movement, right? So there is this sort of accountability. Uh, I agree there. Just uh, to, to make a comment about failure, so finding case studies of nonprofit failure, I found, I don't know if you found this, I found it very hard to find those stories. Um, and I think, I suspect that's because repu reputational status is everything. You know, donors find failure kind of an embarrassment. Nobody really wants to talk about, oh yeah, I invested in this nonprofit. It was a total flop. Um, so people are, I've, I found that it was hard. People are a little bit secretive about that. Maybe everybody wants to sweep it under the rug. But finding the story like Whole House, it, it took a lot of time Googling, you know, researching to find that story. The museum in D.C. is another example of, of a struggle. The 80s drug, drug programs in the U.S. So there are stories like that, but boy, were they hard to find. Um, and something tells me that given that they're so hard to find, that there's probably an area for further research on why that is. I, I think that's a great question. On the flip side, uh, I loved reading about the Hewlett Foundation that does something very clever. Um, they encourage their grants officers to share what they call the worst grant from which you learned the most. And they make it sort of fun and light and like, hey, you're not going to get fired, right? Just uh, let's share these type of stories with each other internally so that we learn from these things and, and don't make the same mistakes again. Uh, so you could read about this. Uh, there's, there's a book that shared this called Money Well Spent by Paul Brest and Hal Harvey that shares stories like this. I thought it was great. And what I saw in Jamaica, right? No one paying attention to land titles. So there, there are these big institutional failures, but small experiments and risk should be encouraged. And I, I think our board of directors at the Mercatus Center are really good about this. Uh, they tell us over and over again that it's okay to experiment. It's okay to fail as long as we're learning and growing and adjusting. 
And you'll hear venture capitalists talk about their 80-20 rule. You know, most of their investments aren't going to pan out. So experimentation and, and taking risk and failure is just all kind of par for the course. But there, there is a lot we can do in nonprofits to be effective and smart about this. And so I mentioned some of these. I'll just briefly mention them here. But uh, in the book, we talk about you want to be a bottom-up organization and empower teams to be creative and problem-solve, to launch experiments, to uncover hidden needs of the people that they're serving. We want to be intentional about what we're trying to achieve and make sure that those intentions are clear and really well communicated in the form of strategies and goals. And we want to regularly ask the question, well, how do we know if what we're doing is working? And there are many ways that metrics can go really wrong. Um, so I spend some time talking about that in my book. And there's, there's another really great book that goes into that called The Tyranny of Metrics. That uh, is just, it's a lot of fun. I recommend it to everybody. You can read it about four hours. And he uses the uh, HBO series, The Wire, to go into just these disastrously wrong-headed metrics where you can incentivize the wrong things, things you, you don't want to do. So you can train your team. And I talk about this in the book, but train your team to watch out for those things because it's very easy to get into those pitfalls. But there are way, things that you want your metrics to do for you. So when designed well, your evaluation system can really serve as a valuable feedback loop, help you learn and adjust and actually spur innovation. I think there's a really profound comment that you've made there in terms of the sociological and psychological sort of dimensions of failure and the the aversion to failure. So uh, in the economic realm, we might talk about the instrumentalist properties of uh, relative prices, uh, several property and profit and losses in uh, disciplining uh, sort of market operators to help them uh, avoid failure. But there certainly does seem to be uh, a psychological and sociological aversion uh, operative as well. The des active desire to avoid failure, which is not only manifested in the market sense, but also in the civil societal space as well. So I think that observation is particularly uh, profound. So what I want to do now is actually just turn to uh, some potential sort of policy dimensions uh, that might uh, sort of spring forth from your book. So on several occasions throughout your book, you do refer to the influence of uh, fiscal, legal and regulatory policies upon the performance and conduct of nonprofits. And I'm wondering if you might be able to briefly outline what you identify as some of the major opportunities as well as risks and challenges that arise from a sense of closer entanglement between public sector agencies and nonprofit organizations. Yeah, Michaela, I noticed that you mentioned something like this in your book about the entanglements between um, vested interests and people who uh, have, have sort of the interest to keep the status quo. And um, as I was reading uh, the person I mentioned earlier, David Hammock, I noticed him writing about that um, during the civil rights movement, groups like the Southern Christian Leadership Association, who were definitely challenging those in power, um, they were absolutely challenging the status quo. And I, was, I probably shouldn't be surprised, but I was definitely disheartened to read about they really didn't receive funds from major foundations. And, you know, of course, we're looking back and back in time, but, you know, it was just saddened to read about that. But, you know, it probably does make sense that these uh, groups that are really challenging the status quo and if, uh, you know, major foundations are maybe representing that status quo, there will be a conflict. The, the whole house example that I mentioned, um, uh, their problem was, so uh, while they were originally taking a lot of funds from local people who supported their mission because they were a, an immigrant resettlement house, um, over time, uh, the federal government started liking what they do and giving them giving them grants. And they just sort of engaged in this mission drift that led them to uh, become sort of this government agency just totally different than their original mission, right? So they lost their super fans and their local supporter base and ended up having to close their doors eventually from mission drift. And I think that was part of this entanglement that you're talking about. Um, so I think this is an area where there's a lot of burgeoning research and it's super interesting. I noticed in research for the book, a lot of groups like say Goodwill Industries or Cleveland Clinic, where there's this sort of hybrid legal structure where there's, um, you know, they're gev getting government grants they're doing nonprofit work, and then they have sort of a for-profit side of the house. So like Cleveland Clinic, even though they're a nonprofit hospital, has a, a kind of for-profit spinoff side of what they do where uh, they are creating patents for the things they're discovering. So you've got this crazy 
complicated entanglement of government, nonprofit, for-profit that um, is super interesting. And I suspect Eleanor Ostern probably would have a lot to say on this, but um, it's it's not something I've, I've researched in depth, but I think it's a great, um, I'm eager to see more unfold and learn more about this. I think there is a, a recognition within the nonprofit sector. I'm certainly aware of cases in my home country of Australia and New Zealand as well, where the non-profit organisations become eventually sort of quite wary about engagements with government, because even if initially so grant giving is unconditional, what they do tend to find over time, or at least there's a range of anecdotal examples that point to it, is that conditionality gets wrapped up into the sort of the constant intertemporal uh, sort of flow of funding. And then what happens, then you sort of create uh, sort of dilemmas for that organisation in terms of meeting their original objective or the, the spirit of their original objective. And you referred to some closer to home examples there. So I definitely agree with you. There's there's definitely a burgeoning uh, sort of area of research here to sort of think about the opportunities and challenges that arise from this phenomenon of entanglement. So um, I'd like to think about uh, more of the general implications of your book, which I um, heartily recommend everyone read. So your book, Innovation for Social Change, I think is a most perceptive account of the opportunities and challenges faced by nonprofit organisations when engaging with the rigours and demands of innovation. Now, do you believe there is actually anything of value that theoreticians in classical liberal, philosophical, or even other traditions could learn from your practice-oriented approach to engaging with nonprofits and the realities of social innovation. So in short, why should academics in economics and other, other social scientific disciplines even care about the practical dimensions of civil societal action? What say you? Well, a conversation like we're having right now is so great. Um, the uh, listeners may not know, Michaela and I exchanged books. I'm reading her book, which has a lot of theory about social change, and, and she's reading mine. And so this dialogue right between the practitioner and the theorist, it's just fantastic. Um, I think we can learn a lot from each other. And uh, that, so, for, for example, in my work with nonprofit teams that are working on the front lines of, of social change, we often struggle with what I'll call myopic thinking or siloed thinking. I think often we fail to think big enough about what's possible as we're struggling to figure out, well, how do we solve this thing? Um, and so this research of what you call sort of the entangled political economy about networks or the complexity of partnerships across sectors uh, is so helpful, right? So I think that that theory and what maybe you or other researchers uncover about that entanglement will very much help us on the ground as we're looking for what are the various ways that you know we could look to to solve these problems? And maybe we could look outside of our four walls of our nonprofit or or partner with someone unexpected to to overcome whatever it is we're trying to solve. So I think that your research helps us stretch our imaginations and think bigger about what's possible. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to learn more from the researchers who are who are working on this question. And I, I was kind of hoping somebody would write an Ostrom for Dummies book. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so my book is definitely written for practitioners, but maybe theoreticians working in sociology or entrepreneurship studies or civil society studies or political economy might there might be some back and forth that might be useful. I hope so. Yeah, look, I do definitely do think that there is a very great potential for greater dialogue between practitioners and researchers because the great benefit, I think, for of uh, non-profit practice studies for researchers is that it allows researchers to conduct grounded studies uh, that are that are practical uh, and that are oriented to conditions on the ground as opposed to you know high abstractions which are not appealing and possibly, quite possibly not relevant uh, to action situations on the ground. So uh, certainly, definitely uh, support the, uh, so the, the sentiments that you put there, including uh, the, the Ostrom for Dummies. I, I think that will be, uh, be a very useful contribution uh, so should someone engage. So we're almost um, uh, out of time, but I actually wanted to pose to you probably the the, the, the greatest, perhaps most difficult question of them all to, to almost finish off. How would you define civil society? We've spoken about civil society uh, for the best part of an hour, but 
How do you define it? And what does that term mean to you personally when someone like me or someone else, a, a colleague or a scholar, invokes that term? What does it mean? Yeah, I had to think about that a little bit. I, the book forced me to think about it because, like, I, I, you know, I'm a practitioner. I'm, I'm working with practitioners. So thinking, you know, thinking about that at sort of that higher abstract level, uh, I, I felt forced to do it just through the nature of writing the book. I've, I've heard some people call it the third sector. Sector, but as I, I was working working through my own thinking about it, there's this idea from economics, and, and I'm not an economist, so I, I, you could probably articulate this better than than I am. But I understand this idea of public goods or the commons, where there are these things in the world that aren't easily sold in distinct units, like pollution, for example, or a lighthouse or security. I think economists might call these things like uh, non-excludable and non-rivalrous. Those are big words. But this is where I think that's where civil society comes in, at least in my mind. Um, and then uh, you have these robust debates then about, well, who's best to solve this thing, this pollution or the lighthouse or whatever? Is it government? Is it nonprofits? Um, and I think civil society, at least I, you know, feel free to challenge or disagree, but um, might also include family, friends or community uh, to me. Civil society might include the hard work of parents raising their children or taking care of an aging relative. Uh, and then there are many people doing the work of civil society, you know, in, in formal ways, like through church or, or just simple volunteerism. But then civil society also includes this more structured um, effort of formal nonprofit institutions, uh, larger orga organizations, uh, maybe a food bank or an animal shelter or groups working on land conservation. So I would say civil society is really doing doing the hard work of, of solving these difficult social problems. But feel free to I'd love to hear your thoughts or feel free to disagree. No, I don't. I don't think I actually disagree with anything you say there. And I think in the end, I regard civil society as a complex adaptive phenomenon, which uh, involves varying degrees of informality, varying degrees of organisation practical improvisational help. So uh, there are these sort of social spaces that go just a little bit beyond the abstractions and the formalities of market and state that we deal with on an everyday basis. And I think for me, I, I think, um, you know, your understanding of civil society is pretty much spot on. It's very difficult to challenge, I'd definitely say. So um, I'd like to actually, Cecilia, thank you, uh, Leah Krell, for your time and your crucial insights into the practicality and theory of nonprofit organisation and civil society dynamism. Uh, your book, uh, Innovation for Social Change, is now available through all good outlets and online. And her website is leahkral.com, L-E-A-H-K-R-A-L.com. Uh, Leah, thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela, for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.